This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Welcome to The Works. This week, we will highlight some of the recent news headlines of the recent week. This segment is in conjunction with OBS Talk Show Presents Podcast and OBS News Trial. While Trump pushed for a 2026 start date, the judge overseeing former President Donald Trump's election interference case in federal court set a trial date for March 4, 2024, a schedule that could have a crucial impact on the 2024 race for the White House. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin's decision sets the trial in the middle of the Republican presidential primaries and the day before Super Tuesday. During a hearing on Monday, Chutkin heard arguments from Trump's lawyers and federal prosecutors about when the case could be set for trial. Special counsel Jack Smith proposed that the trial start in January, with jury selection beginning in December of this year, while Trump's team said the trial should be pushed back until April 2026, after the presidential election. These proposals are obviously very far apart, Chutkin said Monday. Neither of them is acceptable. Chutkin said that Trump will have to prioritize the trial and that she wouldn't change the trial schedule based upon another defendant's professional obligations, say, for a professional athlete, the public has an interest in the fair and timely administration of justice, Chutkin said. Trump's lawyer said that going to trial next year would violate the former president's rights, noting the millions of pages of discovery that prosecutors have turned over. This is a request for a show trial, not a speedy trial, Trump lawyer John Loro said of the special counsel's proposed schedule. Mr. Trump is not above the law, but he is not below the law. After Chutkin made her ruling, Loro stood to make an objective on the record and state that Trump's defense team will not be able to adequately represent their client with that trial date. Chutkin noted his objection and moved on. Earlier in the hearing, Chutkin said that while the special counsel team's proposal was too soon, Trump's proposal of 2026 wasn't reasonable. Discovery in 2023 is not sitting in a warehouse with boxes of paper, looking at every single page, Chutkin said. Hate crime. Three killed in shooting at Jacksonville store by gunmen with swastika-painted PA-15 on Saturday, August 26. Just after 11.30 a.m., Clay County Sheriff Michelle Cook told the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office that the shooter left the Clay County area and was headed to Jacksonville. By 1.18 p.m., the shooter sent a text to his father, telling him to check his computer, Waters said. That's when the shooter's parents called the Clay County Sheriff's Office and told deputies they found a manifesto in their Oakleaf home. Waters said three manifestos were written that expressed a disgusting ideology of hate. They were written, according to the sheriff, to the media, his parents and federal agents. To plainly put, this shooting was racially motivated and he hated black people, Waters said. This is a dark day in Jacksonville. Any loss of life is tragic but the hate that motivated the shooter's killing spree adds an additional layer of heartbreak. Sherry Onks, special agent in charge of the Jacksonville FBI office, said that federal officials are opening a civil rights investigation into the shooting. The FBI plans to pursue it as a hate crime. Hate crimes are always and will always remain a top priority for the FBI because they are not only an attack on a victim. They're also meant to threaten and intimidate an entire community, Ankh said. Waters also confirmed that the shooter was spotted putting on a mask and ballistics vest at EWU before heading to Dollar General. Campus security attempted to catch the shooter but he got away. EWU officials sent out an alert to students about the situation as they were told to remain in their residence halls until the scene was cleared.
The sheriff said the shooter's intentions were to target a certain group of people. I don't know that the targets were specific, but I know that any member of that race, at that time, was in danger, Waters said. Deegan also addressed the media at the conference saying, we must do everything we can to dissuade this type of hate. Waters said there is no evidence that the shooter is associated with any hate groups. This is unacceptable, Deegan said when she spoke to News 4 JAX at the scene. One shooting is too much but these mass shootings are really hard to take. Deegan was talking with officials in District 13 State Representative Angie Nixon, who represents the neighborhood as she learned what happened. Moments later, according to the witness, he heard gunshots ring out. He said the shooter was firing at cars before he went inside the store. The witness said he turned around and saw a woman running and another man fall back. Nixon also called the situation tragic and said they were trying to calm the residents down and offer support. These are things that we want to try to avoid by making sure that our communities are fully resourced, making sure we're creating a climate of love and not tension, Nixon expressed. City leaders were seen gathering in the street for a prayer circle over the tragedy. Councilwoman Jucobi Pittman said her heart is heavy. I'm tired of seeing all the shootings, Pittman said through tears. The people in this community are hurting. A spokesperson for Dollar General sent the following statement. We are heartbroken by the senseless act of violence that occurred at our King's Road store in Jacksonville, Florida today. At this time, Supporting our Jacksonville employees and the DG family impacted by this tragedy is a top priority as we work closely with law enforcement. Just before 4.15 p.m., some JSO officers and JFRD crews were seen leaving the area. The Federal Bureau of Investigations and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives are also investigating. This shooting comes five years to the day when a shooter killed two people and injured 11 others before turning the gun on himself at a gaming tournament at a Chicago pizza in the former Jacksonville landing. Deegan said that the shooter acknowledged the landing shooting in his manifesto. Hundreds of people gathered Sunday, August 27 at prayer vigils and in church, in frustration and exhaustion, to mourn yet another racist attack in America this one the killing of three black people in Florida at the hands of a white, 21-year-old man who authorities say left behind white supremacist ramblings that read like, the diary of a madman. Following services earlier in the day, about 200 people showed up at a Sunday evening vigil a block from the Dollar General store in Jacksonville where officials said Ryan Palmeter opened fire Saturday using guns he bought legally despite a past involuntary commitment for a mental health exam. Republican government. Ron DeSantis, who is running for the GOP nomination for president, who has loosened gun laws in Florida and who has antagonized civil rights leaders by deriding wokeness, was loudly booed as he addressed the vigil. Jucobi Pittman, a Jacksonville City Councilwoman who represents the neighborhood where the shooting happened, stepped in to ask the crowd to listen. It ain't about parties today, she said. A bullet don't know a party. DeSantis said that on Monday the state would be announcing financial support for security at Edward Waters University, the historically black college near where the shooting occurred, and to help the affected families. He called the gunman a major league scumbag. What he did is totally unacceptable in the state of Florida, DeSantis said. We are not going to let people be targeted based on their race.
Sheriff T.K. Waters identified those killed as Angela Michelle Carr, 52, who was shot in her car, store employee A.J. Laguerre, 19, who was shot as he tried to flee, and customer Gerald Galleon, 29, who was shot as he entered the store in a predominantly black neighborhood. Galleon attended St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Bishop John Guns told the crowd. He was the 33rd murder victim in the 27 years Guns has been there, he said. In two weeks I have to preach a funeral of a man who should still be alive, Guns said. He was not a gangster, he was not a thug, he was a father who gave his life to Jesus and was trying to get it together. I wept in church today like a baby because my heart is tired. We are exhausted. The latest in a long history of American racist killings unfolded early Saturday afternoon after Palmeter first parked at Edward Waters University. The sheriff said a video posted on TikTok with no timestamp showed Palmeter donning a bullet-resistant vest. A university security guard spotted Palmeter and parked near him. Palmeter drove off and the security guard flagged down a Jacksonville sheriff's officer who was about to send out an alert to other officers when the shooting began at the store. Palmeter used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and a Glock handgun in the shooting, Waters said. He had legally purchased the guns in recent months even though he had been involuntarily committed for a mental health examination in 2017. Because Palmeter was released after the examination, that would have not shown up on his background checks. Palmeter killed himself as police arrived, about 11 minutes after the shooting began. Palmeter lived with his parents in neighboring Clay County. He texted his father during the shooting and told him to break into his room, Waters said. The father then found a suicide note, a will on the racist writings Waters described as, quite frankly, the diary of a madman. He was just completely irrational, Waters said. But with irrational thoughts, he knew what he was doing. He was 100% lucid. The sheriff said Palmeter, wearing his vest covered by a shirt, gloves and a mask, first stopped in front of Carr's vehicle and fired 11 shots with his rifle through her windshield, killing her. He entered the store and turned to his right, shooting Laguerre, video shows. Numerous people fled through the back door, the sheriff said. He chased after them and fired, but missed. He went back inside the store and found Galleon entering the front door with his girlfriend. He fatally shot Galleon. He then chased a woman through the store and fired, but missed. Study, wildfires amplify health risks, costs for Alabama. People from Alabama and north along the East Coast are still coping with poor air quality this summer because of wildfires many miles away in Canada, where more than 600 fires are still burning. One of the latest studies found, once again, that climate change is exacerbating the harmful effects of wildfires which also increases health burdens. The study estimated that during major wildfire events, the United States and Canada could incur additional health care costs that range from $1.6 million to more than $6 million. Nikki Vars McCullough, vice president of 3M's personal safety division and an expert in respiratory protection, urged people to take the hazy sky seriously because wildfire smoke can be extremely dangerous. Wildfire smoke is made up of very, very small particles, and they are contributing to poor air quality across the United States this year, she said.
Other particles that are in the air include dust and dirt from dry fields and roads, vehicle emissions from cars and trucks. According to the report, published in the journal Nature, fine particles from wildfire smoke are disproportionately dangerous compared with other sources and have been linked to higher death rates from heart and respiratory causes. McCullough suggested that on days with poor air quality, people should spend as much time indoors as possible. When going outside is unavoidable, she said, they should consider wearing an N95 respirator mask. She also emphasized the importance of paying attention to the air quality inside your home on bad air quality days. Avoid certain types of cooking or vacuuming or burning candles, she said, and then you can work to filter the air inside of your home. So, if you have a home HVAC system, you can get a high-efficiency filter and you can run your HVAC system fan continuously. The report predicted that densely populated areas will experience the greatest changes in healthcare cost due to wildfires and the effects of climate change. Advocates blast EPA over inaction on confinement rules. Clean water activists are angry over a decision by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to sidestep action on threats to water posed by factory farms. A group of petitioners, including Iowa citizens for community improvement, called on the EPA six years ago to toughen regulations. Along with dozens of other organizations, Iowa CCI petitioned the EPA in 2017 to strengthen its factory farm water pollution regulations under the Clean Water Act. In a recent decision, the EPA announced it would form a committee to study the issue rather than impose any new regulations or require Iowa regulators to enforce existing law more strictly. Chair of Iowa CCI's Board of Directors Barb Kalbach said the EPA's inaction creates unsafe water conditions for Iowans, too dirty to swim in or fish in or whatever, have recreation in, said Kalbach. That's mostly what we get. So, we had hoped the EPA could pressure the state of Iowa to enforce regulations. Kalbach argued that the EPA's weak rules have left the large-scale livestock industry mostly unregulated. Iowa produces nearly 24 million hogs a year, highest in the nation. In its ruling, the EPA says it shares environmental concerns over the large livestock operations and agrees many may be in violation of the Clean Water Act, but stopped short of strengthening regulations and instead announced an advisory committee to further study the issue. Kalbach called this type of inaction typical. My reaction was color me surprised, said Kalbach. I have absolutely no faith that a committee will make any kind of decision or any kind of recommendation that has not been made to EPA for the last 15 years. Absolutely nothing will come out of that. Large-scale livestock feeding operations, also known as CAFOs, are well-known sources of water pollution in Iowa, where, left unchecked, nitrates can leach into nearby rivers, lakes, and streams, making the water dangerous for both humans and wildlife. Tropical Storm Idalia is expected to strengthen into a hurricane Monday and bring life-threatening and potentially catastrophic storm surge, winds, and flooding rainfall to Florida's Gulf Coast starting Tuesday into Wednesday as a Category 3 storm. Concerns are mounting around Idalia's expected strength as it goes through rapid intensification, something it is forecast to do up until it makes landfall along Florida's Big Bend, a natural, storm surge-prone divot along the coast stretching from Tampa to just south of Tallahassee. Up to 11 feet of storm surge was forecast there.
mandatory and voluntary evacuations were issued for at least five counties along Florida's Gulf Coast with less than 48 hours before the storm makes landfall, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis warned of many more to come. This is going to be a major impact, DeSantis said during a Monday morning news conference, warning Floridians should expect Idalia to be a major hurricane, Category 3 or higher, at landfall. Rapid intensification is expected. Idalia is forecast to rapidly intensify from a Category 1 hurricane Monday night to a powerful Category 3 hurricane just 24 hours later as it tracks over exceptionally warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. A small shift in the track could dramatically affect Tampa. If Idalia were to make landfall farther south than currently forecast, Tampa could be hit with stronger winds and a larger storm surge. Impacts well outside the cone Storm surge, wind and rain will affect much of Florida's Gulf Coast. After the storm makes landfall, damaging winds and heavy rain will spread far inland into Florida, parts of Georgia and even the Carolinas. Impacts from Idalia will be felt from the Florida Keys to portions of the state's western coast as soon as Tuesday. Wind speeds will increase across the Florida Keys and the state's southwestern coast as early as Tuesday morning. Gusty winds are likely across a large portion of Florida, including inland areas, by Tuesday night as Adalia's outer bands lap inland. Wind, rain and storm surge will only increase in scope and intensity across Florida until it makes landfall on Wednesday morning as a powerful hurricane along the state's Gulf Coast. A large swath of Florida is expected to experience impacts from Adalia. But the worst of what the storm has to offer will stretch from Tampa northward through the Big Bend region and into portions of the Panhandle. Conditions will deteriorate rapidly in these areas overnight into Wednesday morning as landfall draws closer. The storm is about 50 miles off the western tip of Cuba, whipping up maximum sustained winds of 70 miles per hour, the National Hurricane Center said in an 11 a.m. Eastern Time update. Life-threatening storm surge up to 11 feet is possible in Florida's Big Bend which will only be worsened by waves driven by hurricane-force winds in excess of 100 miles per hour. Storm surge, which is when a storm blows the ocean onshore, is one of the deadliest aspects of a hurricane and the reason behind most storm evacuations. Storm surge is often the greatest threat to life and property from a hurricane, the Florida Division of Emergency Management Agency warned. It happens quickly and can endanger you, your family and your home. During Hurricane Ian, 10 to 15 feet of storm surge wiped buildings off their foundations in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. From Idalia, 7 to 11 feet of surge was predicted from Idalia, something Michael Brennan, the National Hurricane Center's director, called our biggest concern. These are areas you don't want to be in if you've been asked to evacuate, Brennan said. Storm surge alerts stretched along much of Florida's Gulf Coast from just south of Naples north along all the way to the Panhandle near Apalachicola, highlighting how widespread the risk is. As the storm approaches, the Tampa Bay area is forecast to see a storm surge of 4 to 7 feet above normal tidal levels, numbers that could change depending on Adalia's final track. Mandatory and voluntary evacuations were issued in multiple Florida counties Monday morning, which DeSantis warned would expand. There are going to be evacuation orders issued in all these Gulf Coast counties in the A and B zones, and, all the barrier islands places that are low-lying on the coast, DeSantis said.
mandatory evacuations were ordered Monday for Pasco, Manatee, Hernando, Taylor and Pinellas counties for low-lying coastal areas and vulnerable structures. Evacuations weren't issued in the Tampa area yet, but officials there warned a decision would be made very soon. If and when the governor issues an evacuation order, that means your life is in danger. Hear those warnings, Tampa Police Chief Lee Burkaw warned. Tampa International Airport announced it would cease all commercial operations by 12.01 a.m. Tuesday. The airport announced it aimed to reopen Thursday morning, after taking stock of what damage the storm left behind. Governor DeSantis expanded an emergency declaration to 46 of 67 Florida counties on Monday morning. DeSantis mobilized 1,100 National Guardsmen with high-water vehicles and aircraft for rescue and recovery efforts. The Florida Highway Patrol also has 300 troopers ready to deploy. Power companies will also start staging personnel on Monday, according to the governor. If you are in the path of the storm, you should expect power outages so please prepare for that, the governor told residents. Georgia was also preparing for Adalia's arrival. Governor Brian Kemp activated the State Operations Center Monday. Thanks to our response partners on both the state and local levels, Georgia will be prepared for whatever Idalia will bring, said Governor Brian Kemp, rest assured. Though the system will likely weaken before crossing our border, we're not taking anything for granted. COVID-19 was never just another cold. We knew it was going to stick around and keep changing to try to get the upper hand on our immune systems. But we've changed, too. Our B-cells and T-cells, keepers of our immune memories, aren't as blind to this virus as they were when we first encountered the novel coronavirus in 2020. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has screened blood samples and estimates that 97% of people in the U.S. have some immunity to COVID-19 through vaccination, infection, or both. Then there's science, we have updated vaccines and good antivirals to lean on when cases start to rise. Masks still work. Rapid tests are in stores. We now know to filter the air and to ventilate our spaces. Those strategies, plus our hard-won immunity, had helped bring our national numbers of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths down to levels that felt almost forgettable. Almost. Now that COVID-19 infections have started to rise again, it feels like people all over the country are testing positive, and it's hard to know how to react. The government has been dialing back its response since the end of the public health emergency in May. Good COVID-19 data is hard to come by and harder to interpret. So if people are less likely to be hospitalized or die from a COVID-19 infection now, has the danger passed? Is there still reason to worry if you do catch the infection for a second, third, or fourth time? Experts say it's less risky to catch COVID-19 than it used to be, but there are still good reasons not to treat it casually. At this point, the risk is lower because of our prior immunity, whether for severe outcomes or for long COVID, said Dr. Megan Ranney, an emergency physician and dean of the Yale School of Public Health. COVID is still more dangerous than the flu but its level of danger is becoming less, she said, noting that we're still very early in our human experience with the coronavirus, even four years in, and there are still things we don't know. But for it to behave like other respiratory viruses in terms of seasonality and surges is entirely expected, she added. 
It would be really weird for COVID to disappear or for it not to cause illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths. It is still a virus, Rani said. But a somewhat predictable waxing and waning of infections doesn't make COVID-19 something to turn our backs on. Our immune systems are better at spotting danger. After more than three grueling years, nearly all Americans have some immunity against COVID-19. That means our immune systems, as long as they're healthy and working as they should, will remember most forms of the coronavirus when it next comes our way. That process takes some time to get going, however. That lag may give the virus enough of a window to get a foothold in our nasal passages or lungs, and we get sick. We may feel crummy for a few days, but then our B cells and T cells get their antibody production up and running. Eventually, they shut the virus down, and we get better. That's what should happen. But for many, their immune system just doesn't kick in as quickly or as vigorously as it should. Immune function drops off naturally with age. About one in four Americans is over the age of 60, according to census data. Then there are certain medications and health conditions that suppress immune function. About 3% of the U.S. population, 7 million people, is severely immunocompromised, according to the National Institutes of Health. This is a group taking medications to protect organ transplants or who are getting powerful drugs for cancer treatment, for example. Then there's individual variability. Through genetic bad luck, some people may just be at higher risk of serious reactions to COVID-19 infections, and they probably wouldn't know it. Taken together, that's a sizable pool of people who benefit greatly from having antibodies at the ready to take on the coronavirus as fast as possible. Vaccines get those antibodies in place and ready to work as soon as they're needed. Sometimes, people are so immunocompromised that vaccines can't help them much either. They benefit from preventive shots containing COVID-fighting antibodies that are built to stick around the body for a few months. Until this year, there was such a preventive product available, Avushald. But the virus has evolved so much that Avushald lost its potency, and in January, the FDA revoked its authorization. Since then, people who have very low immune function haven't had anything to protect them from infection or severe disease. But that could change. The government announced this week that it's funding the development of a new preventive antibody through the drug company Regeneron. Trials of that drug are expected to start this fall, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. While nearly all of us have immune systems that can recognize key parts of the virus now, even that memory to the infection fades over time. The longer it has been since you've been infected or vaccinated, the more forgetful your immune system becomes. Those B cells and T cells, they're going to be a little slower to respond. They're not they're not as primed and ready to go, Rani said. Your strongest immunity will be in the two weeks to two months after you get your vaccines. That means it's smart to try to get your shots shortly before COVID is expected to be on the upswing. Just like for flu, experts expect the worst of COVID to hit in the fall and winter. CDC Director Dr. Mandy Cohen said that even though cases are going up now, most people will be better off waiting a few weeks to get the newly updated COVID-19 vaccines rather than trying to get one of the older bivalent vaccines right now. But this is dependent on personal risk, so if you're concerned, talk to your doctor or nurse practitioner about your options. Risks from new variants Variants are another reason people need to keep getting COVID vaccines. 
the coronavirus evolves constantly. Most of the time, its improvements are incremental. In essence, it slips on a hat or fake mustache, but that's not enough to completely disguise it from our immune system or our vaccines when it tries to break in. SARS-CoV-2 samples at the National Public Health Laboratory in Singapore, part of the COVID-19 Reference Laboratory Network. Copyright Hoof slash Juliana Tan, scientists race to understand highly mutated coronavirus variant spotted in four countries, including the U.S. Occasionally, it gets a makeover. It has cut and dyed its hair, had plastic surgery, and lost a ton of weight, so to speak. These big changes make it unrecognizable to our immune system and sometimes to vaccines and drugs we use to fend it off. That happened during the first wave of Omicron. A virus emerged in South Africa and Botswana that was wholly different from the viruses in circulation but still caused COVID-19. It quickly spread worldwide, infecting vaccinated and previously infected people alike. Omicron caused a jaw-dropping 1 million infections a day in the United States in the winter of 2021. Another virus like that has emerged on the world stage. It's called BA.2.86, and it has more than 30 amino acid changes to its spike protein, which makes it as genetically distant from its next closest ancestor, BA.2, as the original Omicron variant was from the ancestral strain of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that emerged in 2019 in China. Compared with the very first sequences of the virus that causes COVID-19, it has 58 changes to amino acids in its spike protein, according to Dr. Jesse Bloom, who studies the molecular structure of viruses at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. It's not clear exactly where BA.2.86 came from. Scientists believe that the pattern of mutations it carries are characteristic of a virus that's been changing inside the body of a chronically infected person. Typically, these patients have diminished immune function so that they can't completely clear the virus from their bodies, but they have enough immunity that it puts pressure on the virus to keep changing to survive. Or it may have previously circulated in a part of the world with limited variant surveillance. Scientists have spotted 13 human infections with this emerging variant have been confirmed from six countries, Israel, Denmark, the United Kingdom, the United States, Portugal, and South Africa. The status of the patients is not known in every case. Of the cases for which information on the patients is available, one has been hospitalized and none have died. The people do not appear to have had contact with each other, and only one has traveled indicating that the variant is present around the world and spreading in the community, though it is not known to what extent. It has also been picked up at very low levels in wastewater in the U.S., Switzerland, Denmark, and Thailand. It is also not clear whether this virus will outcompete other circulating variants and grow to cause widespread infections. Variant hunters around the world seem to have spotted it early. Researchers are studying whether it will be able to evade immunity from past infection and vaccination. More information should be available within a few weeks. Unfortunately, the fact that the new coronavirus can morph this way means we'll probably need to keep updating our vaccines and our immunity to keep pace. The U.S. government has launched Project NextGen, which aims to create longer-lasting and more variant-proof vaccines. The first clinical trials of those new vaccines are expected to start this winter, HHS says, lasting risks like long COVID. Dr. Daniel Griffin, an infectious disease specialist at Columbia University,
says people with COVID worry about three things, am I going to die? Am I going to end up in the hospital? But for most people, it's am I going to be sick and stay sick for many months? Am I going to get long COVID? And for most people, actually, that's the most significant risk. Experts noted that there isn't a lot of good research on the risk of getting long COVID now. Based on the science we do have, they say the risk of long-term complications appears to be going down. There were fewer post-COVID conditions reported by patients after Omicron infections compared with those infected during the Delta wave, according to a recent study posted ahead of peer review, but it seems the risk is not entirely gone. Long COVID cases in U.S. adults are on the decline, but many continue to struggle with symptoms, studies show. Another recent study out of Australia, of nearly 23,000 people with confirmed COVID-19 infections between July and August 2022, found that 18% of the more than 11,000 who responded met the case definition for long COVID. Researchers defined it as any new or continuing symptoms more than 90 days after a COVID-19 infection. It was a highly vaccinated group, too. More than 94% of people who responded to the survey had gotten at least three doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. In this study, women, those between the ages of 50 and 69, people who lived in rural areas, and those with fewer vaccine doses were more likely to report having long COVID. The study was posted as a preprint ahead of peer review by outside experts. Based on his experience treating long COVID patients, Griffin said that the percentage reported in the Australian paper seems high. After people are vaccinated, their risk of getting long COVID drops from about 10% to 20% to the single digits, he said. It goes down even further, he said, if they use antivirals like Paxlovid. The general principles are, the sicker you are, the more naive you are immunologically, the higher the chance of acute and chronic complications. And that's kind of going by multiple studies showing that generally earlier in the pandemic, with the original variants, people had more acute and chronic complications, said Dr. Peter Chinhong, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California at San Francisco. Chinhong said recent studies do seem to show that the overall proportion of infections that result in problems like long COVID seems to be dropping over time. When you look at studies, long COVID is going down by one half. And there have been multiple studies like in the UK, the US Census Bureau, and all that stuff with the different variants showing this, he said. Risks from reinfection. It seems like there's always a but with COVID-19. And here it is, across the population, the risk of chronic complications from an infection may be going down, but each infection also adds to the chances that a person may face lasting damage. A recent study published in the journal Nature Medicine found that reinfections are not benign. Each additional infection increased a person's risk of death, hospitalization, and other long-term problems. Long COVID symptoms create a greater burden of disability than heart disease or cancer, new study shows. A recent National Institutes of Health-funded study that combed through millions of patient records to find people who had both first and second COVID-19 infections backs up those findings. Among more than 300,000 people with reinfections, researchers found that the risk of having a more severe disease was slightly higher the second time around. That research was also posted as a preprint ahead of peer review. 
Study author Dr. Nathaniel Hendricks, a researcher and data scientist with the American Board of Family Medicine, said he set out to disprove the findings of the Nature Medicine study, which was based on an older group of mostly male patients treated through the Veterans Affairs Health System. Some critics felt this population couldn't be representative of the larger U.S. After, he said he was surprised when his own study found that the risk of more severe illness did not drop at all for people getting COVID-19 a second time. Hendricks said it's made him think twice about taking precautions. I think it's still worthwhile to do what you can to avoid getting infected, he said. COVID risks for kids. This overall reduction in post-COVID consequences for patients appears to apply to kids, too. Earlier in the pandemic, pediatric infectious disease specialists were on the lookout for a rare complication of COVID-19 infection in kids called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC. MISC starts two to six weeks after a COVID-19 infection. It can cause an ongoing fever as well as more than one of the following symptoms, stomach pain, bloodshot eyes, diarrhea, dizziness, skin rash or vomiting, according to the CDC. MISC can be serious, but most kids get better with medical care. A study published earlier this year found that for every 100 children hospitalized with COVID-19 in 2021, there were 17 MISC hospitalizations, and some cases were fatal. Recent studies suggest that both the number and the severity of MISC cases has gone down globally over time. Studies have shown that vaccination cuts the risk even further, by more than 90%. Now, the risk is about 6% with Omicron at least by one study, and so about half of where it once was, Chinhong said. Fortunately, the risk of long-term problems after COVID-19 has gone down, Griffin said, but for many, it hasn't gone away. He recently saw a young long COVID patient who started to cry because she's been sick for more than two years, and she doesn't seem to be getting better. COVID still seems to be unique in its ability to cause extended illness this way. Griffin says it's possible for people who get influenza to get a problem known as long flu, but the proportion of people who wind up with that is about 1%. With COVID, right now, Griffin thinks that number is at least 5%. That's a big enough risk that Dr. Kristen Angland, an infectious disease specialist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, says it shouldn't be dismissed. Even a mild case of COVID may result in symptoms that last for weeks or four months or longer than that, so it is not something that I would take lightly, she said. How to stay safe The pandemic was a kind of crash course in how to deal with contagious respiratory viruses. Experts say the protective measures we adopted then should probably be part of how we live now. It's still important to break out masks in crowded, poorly ventilated spaces when infections are rampant and to use rapid tests when you get sick so you know whether you might need to take antivirals. Everyone can benefit from vaccines and antivirals, but those are particularly important if you're high risk, people over age 60, those who are pregnant, and those who have underlying health conditions or take medication that reduces their immunity. Those things haven't changed in the past year, Rani said. It's just that we all thought this was done, and so now we're having to re-remember what we did last fall to help manage the virus. Dr. Ellie Murray, an epidemiologist at the Boston University School of Public Health, says we should treat COVID at least as seriously as we do the flu, not just chicken soup, but time off, bed rest 
fluids and reduced contact with others while sick, plus vaccination and good hygiene to prevent infection. Murray notes that we used to think that there was nothing more we could do about the flu and that the level of annual deaths was the lowest it was going to get. The pandemic proved otherwise. We can have fewer flu deaths, and decreasing those is easier even than decreasing COVID deaths, she said. So a better approach would be to treat both the flu and COVID as a new normal, which includes all the things we used to do for the flu, but also adds in ventilation, masking, testing, and treatment. These additions will help reduce the burden of disease for both COVID and the flu. Police at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill are responding to an armed and dangerous person on or near campus, according to an alert from the university on Monday. Remain sheltered in place. This is an ongoing situation. Suspect at large, the university said in an alert sent just before 2.30 p.m., about 90 minutes after the first alert was sent. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper said he has pledged all state resources needed to capture the shooter and protect the UNC campus. A spokesperson for the university declined to comment further on the incident. Calls to the town of Chapel Hill were not immediately returned. A witness on campus told CNN they are currently locked down in their building and see armed officers searching campus. University police advised all students to go inside immediately, close windows and doors, and to wait until further notice, according to an email. This is the second week of the fall semester at the school. The university has a student body population of about 32,000 people, along with more than 4,000 faculty and 9,000 staff members. This is a developing story and will be updated. Thanking for tuning in to the works. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another edition. The offices and studios will be closed from Friday, September 1st to Tuesday, September 5th. There will be no podcast episodes next weekend. Thank you for support. See you soon. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.